Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. It was May 24th, less than a month ago, when a University of Santa Barbara student, Elliot Roberts, began uh, his killing spree. He began by first killing his three roommates, brutally stabbing them to death. Then he moved on to a sorority, hoping to gain entrance and kill the women there. Uh, thankfully, he wasn't able to gain entrance, but he was able to kill three of them. Next, he got in his car and began driving around town and just popping off people as he went around. He ran into a deli and killed a man there. Then he got back in his car and he ran into a bicyclist, and the bicyclist's body just smashed through his windshield. And He continued killing until he finally took his own life. I mean, what happened? Why did he do this? The news media tells us that uh, there was something wrong, something wrong in his brain. His, the chemicals were out of balance. Is that all it was? Was there just uh, chemicals that were out of balance in his brain, or was there more? Something more. For most of history, uh, the world has believed that the entire universe does not just consist of physical things, but there are also spiritual things out there. And there are, there are angelic beings that exist. And some of these angelic beings are dark. They're evil. They're fallen. They're called the, the devil and his demons. And they seek to interface uh, with our everyday life. They seek to bring temptations. They seek to bring trials. They seek to trip up Christians and non-Christians alike. They're intent on our destruction. What do you think? Elliot Rogers and his killing spree that just seemed to come out of no place. Was it just chemicals in his brain? Or was there more? Was there a dark, unseen force that was tempting him and pulling him that way? I'll let you decide. I'll see what answer you come to when we finish our message this morning. If you're new, my name is Kurt, and I'm one of the pastors here at Crosswinds. And we are in a series of studies going through the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians roughly divides into two sections. The first three chapters tell us who we are in Jesus Christ, that we are literally the most blessed beings in the entire universe because of what God has done for us through Jesus. And we don't deserve any of it. It's all a gift. Now, the next three chapters of the book of Ephesians tell us how we live because of who we are. That we live a life that represents the holiness of the God who saved us. But here at the very end of Ephesians, there's a small section in the, in the book on spiritual warfare. Now, why would Paul include this? I think the best way to answer that question is to go back to where we, where we began about uh, 20 messages ago. Right before we started studying the book of Ephesians, we actually studied Acts 19. It gave us the backstory for the Ephesian church. It told us how it started and what the city was like. And we learned that uh, the city of Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. And when Paul went there and he began to preach the gospel, things changed. But interestingly, the city was a dark city, a very dark city. 
a city that was steeped in demonology and steeped in the occult. In fact, it was world famous for its book publishing business, where they published books on how to cast spells and witchcraft and seances and all kinds of dark literature just oozed out of that city. And when Paul began uh, preaching the gospel and he began casting out demons, people noticed right away that the demons were cast out at the name of Jesus Christ. And the name of Jesus had great power. Now, in Acts chapter 19, we learn about a Jewish exorcist group called the Seven Sons of Sceva. And what did they do? They figured that the name of Jesus had such good power that they would just add it to their exorcism, sort of like it was a lucky rabbit's foot. And maybe it would help them to be able to cast out more demons. Things backfired majorly for them. In fact, when they went to cast out a, a demon... In one particular case, they used the name of Jesus, and the demon answered back from the demon-possessed man. And the demon said to them, Well, the name of Jesus I know, and the name of Paul I know, but like, who the heck are you guys? In fact, the demon-possessed man jumped on them and beat them up and sent them out of the house naked and bleeding. So the name of Jesus is powerful, and the, obviously the city of Ephesus is a very dark and demonic place. In fact, when people came to Christ, and they became Christians. They began to get rid of their books on demonology and casting spells. And in Acts chapter 19, we learn that the price of that first book burning that they had uh, for these new Christians, the price of the books was roughly $6 million in today's currency. Now, I don't know about you, but a library that's $6 million in value was huge. I mean, I wish I could have seen the size of that bonfire when these Christians burned their books. So, what we find is Ephesus is a very dark place. And Paul, what he does at the end of the book is he helps the Ephesians understand how demonic warfare takes place and how demonic attack takes place because they are growing their church right in the very living room, as it were, of Satan himself. And we can learn how to handle demonic attacks. And from this section, we learn how to face demonic warfare, something that we, like them, will face from time to time in our lives. So this morning, we're going to develop our thoughts under really just two headings, and they are, first of all, the war. What do I need to know about spiritual warfare? And that's just simply an overview uh, of spiritual warfare. And then we're going to move on to the weapons. What are the weapons we use when we fight this spiritual battle and to defend ourselves from the attacks of Satan and his demons in our lives? So let's begin with the first one, the war. What do I need to know about spiritual warfare? And here's the first question. Who is my enemy? Let me go ahead and I'm going to work through these passages, but I'm going to work through verses 10 through 12. But I'm going to do it in reverse order today. So let's begin by reading verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that it was God's, the Father's, will to make creation. But it was actually Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who carried out his Father's will and made the entire creation. We also know that 
Jesus Christ didn't just make the physical creation, but Colossians tells us that he also made all of a vast spiritual unseen creation of angelic beings, of ranks and powers and types. But we know that when Genesis chapter 1 ends, the scriptures say that everything was good and there was no sin in the world and everything was fine. But by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, apparently something had happened in the heavenly realms. Apparently there was a type of angelic rebellion. And the scriptures tell us that there was a worship leader named Lucifer. And Lucifer led this angelic rebellion. And he was actually cast down to earth and cast out of heaven. And when he was on earth, the first thing he decided to do was go after the pinnacle of God's entire creation. Which is Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were the only beings created in the image and likeness of God, Genesis tells us. And so if he could get them to join him in his rebellion against the God of the universe, that would be another way of sort of spitting in the face of God. And as you know the story in Genesis, Adam and Eve did choose to join that rebellion. They chose to sin. Now let's look at some questions about this enemy of ours. What was the original sin of Satan? What was this thing that he did that caused him to fall into rebellion? The original sin of Satan is pride. The Bible leads us to believe that Satan, as as the name of Lucifer, was an angelic worship leader, and he was to take the worship that he was receiving and he was to pass it on to God. And he was sort of like to forward the mail, if you want to think of it that way. But... Lucifer enjoyed the worship too much, and he wanted to keep some of it for himself. In fact, he found himself wanting to be worshipped instead of pass on worship. He wanted to be the center of the universe rather than worship God who is the center of the universe. He was filled with pride. And because of this, he was cast out of heaven. And in the same way, that's the way he tempts us. He tempts us, ultimately, with pride that we are the center of the universe. He tempts us to think we don't need God, that we can be independent of God. He tempts us to think that we are our own creators and our own sustainers, when in reality, every good gift we have and everything we have, including our life, comes from our Heavenly Father above. So we have to be dependent upon Him. Another question is this. When will my enemy attack? When will my enemy attack me with pride? I think the answer is really at our weakest moments. That's when he attacks most. The perfect picture of that comes from Jesus. You know, Jesus began his ministry with 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And it was a time when he was without food and he was tired and he was hungry. And when Jesus was at his ultimate weakest with being without food and hungry, it is at that point at the very end of the 40 days when Satan began his forceful temptations upon him, tempting Jesus to turn stones into bread, tempting Jesus to worship Satan. If he would only worship Satan, he could have the entire rulership of the universe back without the cross. Now, each time, by the way, Jesus counteracted Satan and fought back by quoting Scripture. We're going to look at the importance of knowing Scripture and quoting Scripture next week when it comes to satanic and, and spiritual warfare. But I just want you to point I just wanted to point that out for you today. That that's how you counter the attacks. 
And when will Satan attack us most fiercely? When we're weak, when we're tired, when we're frustrated. That's when we have to watch that those kind of temptations and attacks come. Another question for you. What are the names of the enemy? Now, why would we want to study the names of Satan? And, uh, here's the reason. In the Bible, whenever you see a name, names have significance. Names have meaning. They're not just randomly given. They're purposeful. And the same is true with uh, Satan, our enemy. So let's look at some of his names. First name is the obvious one, which comes out 53 times in the Bible, which is the name Satan. Now, what does Satan mean? Satan simply means this. It means adversary. Uh, Satan is the one who is committed to our destruction. He's the one who's committed to fight against us. No matter what you may think or what you may feel, you have to know that Satan is committed to your destruction and he is committed to having you join him in his eternal, conscious, never-ending punishment. There is no good in Satan and any kind of plower or blessing or, uh, or any positive benefit that he may give or offer ultimately ends in ultimate destruction. He is your adversary. Another name that we hear uh, used of Satan is the term devil. What does devil mean? Devil simply means tempter. So Satan is uh, who Satan is. He's the adversary. Devil is what Satan does. He tempts us. He tries us. He waits until we are weak, and then he tempts us to rebel against God. Tempts us to not have faith and trust in God. Tempts us with pride in our great moments of strength. That's what he does. Now, how does he put this temptation into action? Many times he speaks it into our mind, and he whispers it into our life. In fact, you can see this when um, Jesus was sharing with his disciples uh, the fact that he would be going to the cross, that everything was not going to end in what looked like earthly victory for them. And when he said this, uh, Peter rebuked Jesus. Interestingly, Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter. But when he rebukes Peter, he doesn't just rebuke Peter, he rebuked Satan, the devil, who was behind this thought in Peter's mind. Look what it says, Matthew 16, 22 through 23. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So the names are Satan, which means our adversary, devil, which means the one who tempts us and who tries us, and there's a number of other names for Satan in the Bible that all have meaning, but I just want to give one more that's sort of fun. Sometimes he's called Beelzebub. In fact, that's Jesus' favorite name for Satan. He calls him that 11 times. Now, what is Beelzebub mean? It literally means Lord of the Flies. It means King of the Maggots, which I think is sort of funny. I mean, Jesus loving to call Satan King of the Maggots? Man, that's quite a cut down. And I think it's appropriately said. Now, um, let's look at some more details here. 
who is working with our enemy against us. So you need to remember that Satan is not the only one out there who is our adversary. The scriptures hint at the fact that when he rebelled between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 3, that in his angelic rebellion, there were uh, approximately one-third of the angelic beings who rebelled with him, and that he is now Lord over them. And the scriptures hint at or tell us a little bit about uh, what those angelic beings look like and how they're put together. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It says, But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What Paul does is he gives us a type of list of the different types of ranks and orders of an, or demonic beings that are working with Satan. He calls, first of all, these two rulers and authorities. Now, we don't have a lot of details on what these mean. There's a lot of Jewish literature written about this, speculating uh, what exactly are the differences between rulers and authorities. The Bible doesn't give us those definitive answers. The Jewish literature speculates. But apparently what happens in this list is it's ordered from the lowest order or rank to the highest order of rank. And so what we see here is these rulers and authorities are demonic beings who are uh, in earth, who are ruling over certain areas or certain things, and authorities even rule over top of them. So we see that these angelic, or rather demonic beings, are highly organized. They're not in chaos. Another one that's interesting is it says, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Interestingly, this is the only time that term occurs in all of Scripture. So why did Paul use it? Archaeologists who have um, worked in Ephesus tell us that uh, of the Ephesian demonic worship, one of the things they worshipped were um, planets. They worshipped heavenly beings. They, They were into astrology, if you want to call it that. And these, the demons or the gods of the heavens they were, they worshipped, were called the cosmocrats, literally in Greek. Or as it says here, the cosmic powers. What Paul says here is there are literally demonic forces that are in the um, celestial realm that these guys are worshipping that are real, that are organized, that are powerful. And then he organizes it here and he says, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And he says there's even more that are higher than that. There's a bunch more that are in the heavenly places. So these demons are organized. They're powerful. They're not just confined to earth. They're they're in the heavenly realms. And he says, well, you need to know they exist. And there's a whole bunch of folks that are working against us. In fact, he describes the battle that they're waging against us in a unique way. He says, um, it's a battle that's like wrestling. Why is the battle described as wrestling? I thought about this for a while. Why isn't it like javelin? Why isn't it like golf? What about baseball? Why is it wrestling? One of the things I learned in my research uh, about the city of Ephesus is that Ephesus, as the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, 
had a coliseum. It had a great coliseum, but it was a very sporting town. And one of the famous sporting events in the city of Ephesus was wrestling. In fact, it was a very hard sport. It's not like the kind that we have in our high school teams where it could be over with in 30 seconds once a guy's shoulders were pinned to the mat. It was um, flesh on flesh, face on face, hand on hand. It was constant, hard, brutal, nonstop battle where there just was no opportunity for rest. It was constantly dogging you. In fact, this may not have been true in Ephesus, in the wrestling there, but we know that according to some of the Greek wrestling, so that it was a a really intense battle, the loser had their eyes gouged out. So you trust me, they battled long, they battled hard. And that's sort of what uh, Paul describes demonic warfare like. That temptation and Satan's demons get on our case and they're there constantly dogging us and hounding us. They just don't let us go. Now, how does uh, Satan and his demons work against us? Uh, What are the enemy's strategies? Because that's what we find here in Ephesians 6.11. As we work our way back up to verse 10. He says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What are his schemes? Let me give you a few. This is how Satan and his demons seek to trip us up. First of all is the scheme of false religions. The Bible tells us that Satan really desires to copy everything about God. He wants to be just like God and uh, and mimic him in every single way. Like, for instance, uh, there is the Christ, but the Reve- book of Revelation also tells us that one day there will be the Antichrist, a false Christ that will try and mimic Christ. Now, also, uh, God is worship because he deserves worship. And in the same way, Satan wants worship. He, he wants to be worshipped just like God. And he does this through false religions. Now, this is a strong statement, and some people don't like to hear it, but it's very biblical. Every religion outside of approaching God through Jesus Christ is worshiping a demon. That's true. Every religion out there outside of approaching God through Jesus Christ is worshiping a demon. That's biblical. Let me show you. In the Old Testament, what does it say? Deuteronomy 32, verse 17. They stirred him to jealousy with strange God. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. So who were they worshiping when they were worshiping false gods? They are worshiping demons. Leviticus 17, verse 7, same idea. And so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons, after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. They're they're worshiping goat demons. Now, you may think that's just an Old Testament thing, but look what happens when we get to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 10, 20-21. Paul writes, No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, 
they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So every religion out there that is not worshiping Jesus is worshiping a demon. This means that uh, the Muslims, as they worship Allah, they're not just worshiping the same God that we are, but by a different name. They're worshiping a demon. The demon called Allah. And it's sort of obvious, isn't it? Uh, look at the desire uh, of the Muslims, that they would die in a holy jihad. That they would have their sons die for us. Where God tells us that he had his son die for us. Not our sons die for him. The same thing is true with Buddhism. <laughs> Buddhism is demonic at its origin and its core. Same thing is true with Hinduism. Hinduism is about multiple demons because you have between 3,000 to 330 million different gods in Hinduism. It's all about worshiping demons. And that's hard, but it's true. Now, how else does uh, Satan seek to trip us up other than false religions that are counterfeits for the one true religion? Another one is called mixing error with truth. Mixing error with truth. Satan rarely gives an outright, bold-faced lie. He loves to take truth and just twist it a bit. You have to be very careful about that. For instance, um, look in the original sin with Adam and Eve, where Satan tempted Eve, saying, Do you know if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be just like God, and you'll know the difference between good and evil? And Eve said, Well, yeah, that's, that's right. And so she was tempted in that direction to rebellion. But he didn't tell the whole story. He didn't tell her that in rebelling against God, what also happens is she was cast into rebellion against God. And eventually, and it began the whole cycle that ends in our death. See, he only tells part of the truth, and he mixes truth and error together. Another way, he speaks lies to our heart, as he did to Jesus, and he says he did to Peter. Satan and his demons love to tell us lies, and loves us to believe lies. We saw this in Jesus in his 40 days in the wilderness. Um, Satan was speaking lies to his heart at the end as he was tempting him. We saw this with Peter, where Satan was whispering lies into Peter's heart, saying, Jesus, no, you shouldn't go to the cross. And he does the same thing with us. Have you ever been in those situations where you find really dark, destructive thoughts going across your mind? And you've wondered sometimes, where do those thoughts come from? They seem so foreign. That may be spiritual attack. That may be demonic influence, because that's one of the ways that Satan tempts us. Another way is this, by placing challenging circumstances in our life, like he did to Job. Many of you know the story about Job, and how Satan went before God, and he they talked about God's servant Job. And the long and the short of the story is, Satan was given permission to bring trials into Job's life. And the question, would Job continue to be faithful to God in the midst of those trials? What I want to point out from that is that Satan was given permission to bring trials into Job's life as a way of testing and proving and displaying Job's faith. 
Maybe if you're going through trials right now, really difficult trials, maybe they have a, a satanic origin about them. Maybe God has allowed Satan to bring them about in your life as a way of testing you and trying you and proving and displaying the authentic character of your faith in Jesus Christ. These are some of the ways that uh, our adversary, the devil, tempts us and he tries us through false religions, truth and error, speaking lies to our heart and bringing trials into our life. Maybe the real question we need to focus on for this morning, though, is how do we find strength to win the war? How do we find strength in these tough times? The answer comes right here in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. The point is that um, when we're spiritually attacked, it's not about our strength. It's not about our ability. It's all about the Holy Spirit and God living in us and working through us. It's about our new identity in Jesus Christ. Remember, this entire book of Ephesians is all about who I am because I've been adopted by Jesus Christ and I'm Jesus Christ's brother or sister and I'm the most blessed being in all of creation and all of my strength doesn't come from me. My strength comes completely from my new identity as a brother or sister from Jesus Christ. So when Satan is attacking us with trials and with temptations and tough times, what do we do? <laughs> We go back to relying on and to enjoying and delighting in our new identity through Jesus. When you're in tough times and you're being tempted, read your Bible. When you're going through difficult times, pray. Be involved in church. Be around Christian friends. Have Christian fellowship. Because we're designed to work together and encourage one another on our road of faith. Our strength to beat the temptations and the trials of life, it comes from delighting in and experiencing our new identity in Jesus. Now, that's a little bit about the war. That's sort of an overview of our spiritual battle. The rest of this passage gets into our weapons and how do we fight the temptations that we face. Uh, the list breaks really into two parts. The first are sort of defensive weapons that we're going to talk about this morning. And then next week, as we finish up the book of Ephesians, we're going to look at the two major offensive weapons uh, that are the Bible and prayer. But today, let's go ahead and look at the defensive weapons. What are my weapons and how do I use them? The first weapon is this. It's called the belt of truth. Now, why does Paul uh, use this analogy of spiritual weapons. As Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, we know he is in Rome, and he is most likely chained to a Roman guard. And you can almost picture he turns to the side and he looks at the Roman guard and he sees the dress of the Roman guard and all the different parts of his uniform and what they were there for. And he analogizes that to being, uh, to being involved in spiritual warfare. So from physical warfare to spiritual warfare. And that's why he uses these analogies. Let's go ahead and read in verses 13 and 14. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. 
Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The Roman uh, soldier's uniform consisted of a sort of a large piece of cloth. Consider it like a bed sheet with a head hole cut in the center that he put over his head and he draped it down on the front and the back of, and it went down just below his waist. And to keep that thing organized, he had a large belt that went around his waist. And the belt held everything together on his clothing. He kept the the clothing from flying around, that he had a place to support his sword and support his breastplate. It held things together. Because in a a battle, it was possible for uh, another military officer to grab a hold of that clothing. And if the belt wasn't fastened, he could pull the clothing out and sort of just mess you up in battle and pull the clothing over your head. And that was the end of you. So he says, the belt of truth. And in other words, what holds everything together for us as Christians is the truth. Like, we have the truth. Look what it says about Satan. John eight forty three through 45 Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my words. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Satan is a liar. In fact, everything about him is a lie. And when it comes to what is the truth about this world, and what is the truth about ultimate reality, what is the truth about uh, eternity, what is the truth about the real problem of man... As Christians, from God's word, we have the truth. And the truth is what holds everything together. So when Satan tempts us, when he tries us, and he makes us feel discouraged, we have to know that we go back to holding on to the truth. We have it. He doesn't. The next piece of armor is called the breastplate of righteousness. He says that having put on the breastplate of righteousness... Now, incidentally, this went over the chest, and it also went over the back. If you are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, you'll know Pilgrim's Progress talks about the breastplate just being on the front, but that may be Pilgrim's Progress, but history tells us it was on back and front of a Roman soldier. And the purpose was to protect your vital organs, because during a time of a scuffle when a Roman soldier was in a battle, uh, one of the things that other soldiers love to do when they're attacking them is using a short knife to shake somebody in the kidneys and the silt in the intestines to go for a a shot in the vital organs and they were protected by this breastplate of this breastplate and what Paul says is what protects us is the breastplate of righteousness now what is this righteousness I think it's two things the first thing is We have righteousness. We have a right standing with God through Jesus Christ. The Bible talks about that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, and then when we came to faith in him, what happened is God did not just take away our sin on the cross, but he took all of Jesus Christ's righteousness and he gave it to us. And so when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see the filth of our sin. He sees the purity of his son. 
Now, what Satan wants us to do is tell us that after we've messed up, after we've sinned, after we're discouraged, after we feel weak, he will tell us that God doesn't see purity. He will tell us that God sees a mess. But what happened is God sees the righteousness of his son that has been given to us. And that is what protects us, our new identity in Jesus. And also, when we live out our new identity and we do what is right, that also actually helps to protect us. There's an interesting passage in Ephesians chapter 4, 26-27. It says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The answer is, is if you go to bed angry, what happens? You haven't done what's right. You haven't tried to solve the problem. You've tried to hold on to your anger. And in doing so, you give an opportunity to the devil for spiritual attack. How many of you have laid in bed angry? And what do you find your mind doing? It spins. It gets worse. And all of a sudden, you start thinking heinous thoughts. You start thinking vicious things about what you'd love to do to the person. Things you'd like to say. Um, and terrible things you'd like to do and what's going on is you're giving an opportunity to the devil and he's attacking you he's sowing evil thoughts in your minds do what is right solve it before bed another part of the uh, armor it's the shoes of the readiness given by the gospel of peace and he says this and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace the Roman soldier had very unique shoes. They were hard to knock down because the shoes had actually a middle layer where they drove nails through them. So they had spiked shoes, sort of like football cleats. And as the Roman line advanced, they would be pushed back, but it was very hard to knock them down because they were sure, so sure-footed in their shoes. What this tells us, is we have the gospel of peace, Paul says. What this means is we have the good news that no matter what happens to us, we have peace with God through what God has done with us with Jesus Christ. We have peace. And when Satan tempts us and he says, you know, God is so angry at you, he's never going to forgive you for what you've done, and you might as well just hang it up, stop going to church, it's all over with, you've messed up so royally. He's saying, no, don't try and push me over, I'm not going to fall. On my feet I have the gospel of peace, that I have peace with God, not from me, but all because God loves me. That's how you fight him back, by going back to the gospel. We have peace. Then he tells us this. Another piece of armor we have that to, to defend us against Satan's attack is the shield of faith. And he says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith by which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The Roman soldiers had two different types of shields. One was a small one that just fit on their forearm, and they used it in hand-to-hand -hand combat. But there was another type of shield. It was rather large. It was usually about four feet high, about two feet wide, and this is the kind of shield that is talked about in this situation here. It was wood, it was thick, and it had a metal rim on the end so it couldn't be chopped into. And as a Roman column would advance, they'd line these shields up to protect themselves from arrows and javelins. And even the soldiers behind them would take these shields and they'd hold them over their heads so that arrows would not rain down on them as their line advanced. 
eventually what happened uh, is people had the idea that, you know, maybe we could just burn these shields up. They'd take the arrows, they'd make special tips that they would actually cover them in pitch. And they'd light these pitch on fire so they'd be flaming arrows that would embed into the wooden door-like structures for shields that the Roman soldiers had. It would burn them up. So the Roman soldiers eventually took animal skin that were, was doused in water and they covered their shields with these animal skins as they advanced to quench the flaming darts that were sent to them. And in the same way, what Paul says is that Satan is going to tempt us with all kinds of flaming darts, all kinds of temptations, all kinds of doubts, all kinds of challenging circumstances he's going to put our way we're going to be discouraged. We're going to feel overwhelmed. And when we feel those times of discouragement and overwhelming, what we do is we raise our shield of faith and we quench the flaming darts. And we say, you know what? No matter what this looks like, no matter what it feels like, the one thing I know is that I can trust Jesus. I can have faith in God. I am the most loved and I am the most blessed being in the entire universe through Jesus. I may not understand what God is doing right now. I may not understand why he's allowed these circumstances into my life. It's beyond me, but I know I can have faith in him and I can trust him. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're in particularly challenging and difficult times and you do not know why God, who loves you so much, has allowed these to come into your life. Raise up your shield of faith. You can trust him. When every time that Satan tempts you to doubt, say, I'm not going to go there. I have a God who loves me, and I'm going to lay and rest in that. The last um, element is called the helmet of salvation. He says, and take up the helmet of salvation. The Roman soldier had a, a unique helmet. Sometimes it was very thick leather, but most of the time it was a metal helmet. And it had a face section that came down the front to protect them. Because what would uh, often happen is in war, where did you want to go for? You want to go for the head. Because if you can get the head, it's like one shot and the guy's dead. A headshot is always a winning shot. So the helmet was designed to protect the Roman soldier. And it was uh, strong enough to take incredibly uh, vicious blows. In fact, one of the weapons that was used at that time was a long-handled axe with a wide head on it. And a soldier would get up on a horse and he'd ride as the cavalry and he'd tilt this long-handled axe over on its side so the blade would be horizontal. And as he would run into the enemy, it would be just at head height and he'd attempt to take off a whole series of heads like a weed whacker cutting the grass. But if you had the Roman helmet on, the Roman metal helmet, it protected your head, like a football helmet protects a player. And it protected you from that vital headshot that could end it all. And he says, we have salvation. That no matter what happens, God, God is saving us. He's saving us from an eternity apart from him. An eternity in a never-ending conscious punishment called hell itself. It's saving us completely and fully as a gift. A gift from God through Jesus Christ. Now, as I thought about this, I thought about sometimes that we go through really weak times. We go through really broken times. Where we feel like there's nothing we can do. 
we can't do anything right. We, we can't, it seems like all of our support and all of our strength is knocked out from under us. What do we do? We rest completely in the fact that God has saved us through Jesus. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.